Welcome to International Tax Bites, a series of conversations around issues and concepts in international taxation. I'm Graham Jackson, and I'm a Gibraltar and English solicitor with Hassan's international law firm in Gibraltar. Today, I will be speaking to my podcast partner, Harriet Brown, who is a Jersey advocate and English barrister with Old Square Tax Chambers in London. So here we are, Harriet. Here we are. In rapid succession. I know we're 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 getting we're getting back in the swing here. We're gonna gonna get get up and running again. It'll be six months before the next one after this, I guarantee you. Now we've said that. Um <laughs> so here we are, and we are long awaited the uh, the 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 the, na- the peoples of the world have been agog waiting for us to do this episode since our roaring success of transfers of assets abroad regime, which if anybody wants to go back and listen to that, it will explain um not an equivalent provision to the one we're going to talk about, but a similar in in aim provision. Uh, absolutely, yes. So I uh, I think it's fair to say that sections 86 and 87 are to some extent the equivalent of transfer of assets abroad because they that they're the equivalent in the sense that they aim to combat similar uh similar tax leakage if i can put it that way abroad um but in relation to gains however in the manner in which they do it they're not at all equivalent so let's let's just let's just quickly um say what we're talking about um which is Sections 86 and 87 of the Taxation of Capital Gains Act. Chargeable gains. Chargeable gains. You see, this is because I'm a foreigner now. I live abroad. I don't know what the bloody act's called. It's the Taxation Uh, taxation of Chargeable Gains Act. Chargeable Gains Act. Yes, because obviously they wouldn't limit it to capital gains, would they? They can expand it to anything they define as chargeable. That is 1992. See, I didn't know that. Has um, been significantly amended and updated, and indeed, to some extent, restated since that time. But what this act is is this is the act that levies capital gains tax. It is yes. Right. Uh, unless se- it's a company. Sections eighty six and eighty seven are anti avoidance provisions. Would you go that far? Yeah, definitely. Right, they're anti avoidance provisions, and what they are targeting is people that shift assets out of their own hands into the hands of people abroad in a way that they can get the money when the assets are sold? Uh, so, so to a certain extent, essentially what they target is gains that arise to a non-resident, um, but which can be linked, to use that in a very non-technical sense, linked to UK residents. So a good example might be if you have a holiday home in the south of France and you um, hold it through a non-UK company and a non-UK trust. So it's owned by a trust, but you get free usage of that property. You either sell the property, well, the, the company sell, the underlying company sells the property and you buy a new, bigger, nicer property and you get free usage of that. Some of the gain on the sale of the first property, the aim of these provisions is to make sure that that gain finds its way back up to settlers and beneficiaries who've had a benefit of such structures. Right. OK. So in a nutshell, you can't just dump stuff into trusts out offshore, by which we mean not in the UK. Do, yeah. 
and um, and shelter yourself from the capital gains tax once the asset is disposed of. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's the end of the episode. We'll speak to you all again soon. <laughs> um, okay. So it's obviously not as simple as that. Um, no, and it's become a lot more complex in recent years because it used to be Section 86 and its associated schedules, which was complicated enough, and then Section 87. <clears throat> but now there, are, now there are the Section 87 alphabet sections, which are, you've got Section 87 capital A through uh, somewhere in the region of M or N possibly, uh, which make, make it a lot more complex than it was even to begin with. So this is part of the government's ongoing um, project to uh, simplify the tax code, right? It certainly looks like it, yes. Yeah. Okay, so talk to me about Section 86 first then, Harriet. Right. Section 86 is a charge on a relevant set law. Um, and what this does is this is a broader spectrum provision if the trust in question is caught, gains are simply treated as the gains of the settlor in the year that they arise. So okay. it, it's, it means that you effect, the settlor effectively stands in the shoes with regards to gains of the trustees. But it doesn't apply to all settlors. Um, it applies in a particular year of assessment where... Um, the trustees of the settlement are non-UK resident. Okay. Uh, you have a settlor who is domiciled in the UK at some time in the year and is resident in the UK for the year. The settlor has an interest in the settlement and there is an amount on which the trustees would be chargeable to tax for the year um, if they were UK resident. Um And a qualifying settlement, you don't need to really... It needs to be a qualifying settlement, but that was pretty much about um, transitional provisions and not so relevant now. In okay, so we've, we've got a series of hurdles to get over before yeah. it even applies. Yes. Yeah. So, so the first is that it's a qualifying settlement, and you're telling me we don't need that, to worry about we that. We don't need to worry about that because everything's a qualifying settlement now. Pretty much, okay. yeah. The trustees need to be non-resident in the UK. Yeah, not UK. So trustees outside the UK. Uh, so that's that's really important because a lot of people confuse governing law and residence of the trust, right? Exactly. It, the governing law is irrelevant to the residence of the trust. The trust for capital gains tax purposes is, is well, is resident um, outside the UK if you have a non-UK trustee. Okay. So that's that's quite, quite an interesting thing that Switzerland didn't used to have a I, I think or it's it's in the, either in the process of or it's just brought in its own trust law. But there's obviously a lot of trustees in Switzerland, so they were obviously they were operating under non-Swiss. Yeah, and it's it's not uncommon law. to see, say for example, you'll quite frequently see an English law trust with say trustees in Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man, Gibraltar, um, and it it's it's two different things. Tax residence and proper law are two different things. Yeah, so it's an important thing to remember. Um, okay, so the third one, the person is a, who is a settlor in relation to the settlement settlement is domiciled in the UK. That's right. Um, so you've got on, on the, 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 the good listeners can't see, but you've got on 
the screen for us to go through the provision. And then there's a square bracket bit around resident in the United Kingdom for the year. What's that? Uh, the square bracket is just because that was changed um, from, I, I, I can't remember exactly what the change was. It certainly, um, it may have previously said ordinarily resident. It may have been changed to deal with split year. I can't remember exactly, but you do, the settlor does have to be domiciled at some time in the year and resident for that tax year. Right. Okay. So it's a double, it's a double test. Yeah. Resident and domiciled. Okay. Not domiciled for the whole year. Just so if you're, if you're domiciled for one day in that year, you're still caught for that year. Okay. And is that, he has to be domiciled and resident in the year in which the settlement is made or in the year in which the chargeable gain, the gain in question is made? In the particular year of assessment in which the gain arises. Right. Okay. Right now. So, um, D, at any time during the year, the settlor has an interest in the settlement. Now, do you want to explain what an interest in the settlement means? I do, because this is, again, something that people um, sometimes consider to be narrower than it is. So very straightforwardly, this is often referred to as a settlor interested trust. So a settlor interested trust is one where the settlor is a beneficiary. They don't have to be um, say they don't have to have a life interest in it. They can just be a discretionary beneficiary, um, but they have to have an interest in it. That would be a very simple way to look at what a settler interested trust is. But a settler interested trust is much actually much broader than that. So it will also include a trust from which a settler is not expressly and irrevocably excluded. So take, right. for example, you have a discretionary class which does not include the settler. So you might have a discretionary class which is, oh, I don't know. Uh, so you've got Anthony and Cleopatra, and Cleopatra is Anthony's brother, and Anthony settles a trust for Cleopatra and her children. Anthony is not a beneficiary of the trust. However, there is a provision which says that anyone anywhere in the world can be added as a beneficiary at the trustee's discretion. That so is he's there. got the potential to be a beneficiary. He's got the potential to be a beneficiary. So you could have that clause, but you would then have to say that no excluded beneficiary could benefit from the trust and define Anthony as an excluded beneficiary to prevent this being a settler interested trust to which Section 86 could potentially attach. And that's clearly sensible because what you would do if you were trying to avoid it would be to write the write 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 the class in a way that doesn't include him and then say, oh, but we can add whoever we want later. His name's nowhere near the trust deed. It looks like he's not a beneficiary. And then, hey, presto, year after gain, he becomes a beneficiary and you trollop all the money out to him. Uh, yes. And I mean, I think... Back, back in the distance mists of time fortunately i haven't seen one for ages but you had red cross trusts didn't you where there was no none of the people who would ultimately benefit from them were remotely identifiable from the trust documentation yeah yeah so i think i can't remember the name of the nature there's a nature reserve in the isle of man that was in some sense the richest nature reserve in the world because it was <laughs> it was the one they used instead of the red cross Oh well, yeah, probably, yeah, almost certainly was then, wasn't it? I mean, the the way that that the way that they sort of started to get rid of that was banks. The first thing that I saw that impacted on that, because you did used to see them quite a lot, and I've been doing this for quite a long time. But what 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 the bank started to ask, have you told the charity? 
And that immediately, people were like, oh, we're not going to tell the charity they might be worth the 20 million pounds that's in the trust. And that sort of um, sort of put the kibosh on it practically. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't it. It had to be flirting with the line of being criminally dishonest to be not. I mean, not necessarily for some purposes, but it had to be flirting with the line of being criminally dishonest in a lot of cases, I suspect. Yeah. I can imagine if you did give it to the Red Cross, somebody would have been very angry. Yes, yeah. I mean, how, yeah, had the trustees plopped it all out to the Red Cross prior to the real, in inverted commas, beneficiaries being added, yeah, there'd have been yeah. outrage, wouldn't there? Yeah, and I'm glad that the people don't do things like that anymore. Um, I really am. I know yes. that um, tax lawyers are supposed to be smart and clever, but there's just some, there's just lots and lots of things that people. Um, people think they can get away with it's just ridiculous anyway right so that's me on a ramble so section 86 what does it say we've worked out that it applies yeah and just just to um give a little um a little bit of context here something we haven't looked at is the uh settler interested trust regime in the income tax trading and other income act uh 2005 so we haven't looked at those provisions. They have a really broad definition of settlement such that um, almost anything, well, anything without gratuitous intent can be a settlement. Settlement in that regime is not equivalent to a trust. Settlement in Section 86 is equivalent to a trust, and it's anything that's held on trust other than um, property held on bare trust, effectively. Okay, so this is one of those great 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 things where you get more than one definite more than one definition of the same word in the same sort of sphere um which happens a lot in tax law i looked at the israeli income tax ordinance yesterday three different definitions of the word relative anyway um so yes it happens all over the world the same word gets defined different ways depending on where you're using it but here we're looking at a narrow definition of settlements we're just talking about trusts are we other including things trusts. like foundations and other things that mimic trusts? Um, no, I don't think we are. It's anything that is held in trust. So, again, in the Inheritance Tax Act, uh, in Section 48.3, you get this, gra this dragging in of anything that sort of looks like a trust. But you don't you don't have that here. Um, OK, so it is it is narrower. It is narrower. Right. Okay. Um, we're a qualifying uh, settlement. We meet the test uh, in in the limbs that we've gone through. What happens next? What pain awaits me as the settlor of the? Uh... Um. So, just two more things: property originating from the settlor, um, because he's only if you've got two settlors of the same. So you've got one. Say you've got the um, everyday trust and sorry, the listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm sitting in a library and all of the names that I'm coming up with are names are things that are on the spines of books that I can see behind my computer. <laughs> so we've got the everyday trust. And if uh, Mr. Christian and Mr. Rose contributed property to the everyday trust, they would only be liable in relation to um, 
property originating from them. And that's property that you've provided, property that represents such property, um, or on a just apportionment basis where it's difficult to tell. But to take go back to our very first example where you had the French holiday home, which was sold for a much bigger, nicer French holiday home, that second French holiday home would be property originating from the settlor because it represents the original property, i.e. it's derived from it. Right. OK, so you so you pay on your bit. On your bit, yeah. Your bit's allocated to you. Right. OK. Uh, um, and there's one more, one more, one more twist. Oh, go on. So a good thing to do there would then be to have trust A and trust B. I would contribute money to trust B. B from which I was excluded from benefit and you would contribute money to trust A from which you were excluded from benefit and then um, happy days we could have an, a trust in which we, we could which we could benefit from which we weren't the settler of but effect, get the same effect and circumvent section 86 well it's alright because the legislation doesn't let you do that alright okay. <laughs> okay this is called a reciprocal arrangement and where a person who is a settler in relation to a settle makes with an, settlement makes with another person arrangements for the provision of property or income, property or income provided by the other person in pursuance of the arrangements is treated as provided by the settler. So you can't have a reciprocal arrangement where you just right. effectively swap trusts. Okay. See, I've thought of everything here, Graham. Okay. So so we've we've established the um that the trust is subject to the charge and we've established that the um, property originates from the individual in the settlor and we've worked out that the settlor has an interest in the um well trust. we need to expand a little bit on where the settlor has an interest so um, we've done the if he himself is um a beneficiary or is not expressly excluded, expressly and irrevocably excluded. But Section 86, um, the schedule that deals with this expands on that. Um, and what it tells us is that he's treated as being interested, even though he's not. He's treated as being interested in a settlement where a defined person can benefit directly or indirectly from property comprised in the settlement or income. Oh, right. OK, so it's it's not just him. It's the people who are closely connected to him as well. Yeah. And so it's him, his spouse or civil partner, a child or a child of his spouse or civil partner. So stepchildren. The spouse or civil partner of his children or his spouse's or civil partner's children, his grandchildren or his spouse's grandchildren, the spouse or civil partner of one of those grandchildren, um, a company controlled by any of the people that we've just mentioned or a company associated with a company controlled by any of the people we've just that's, mentioned. That's really wide, right? So there's a really wide deeming provision here. So you've got the actual genuine settler interest under Section 86, then you've got this deemed settler interest under Schedule 5. But it is only, it, I mean, to stretch the word nuclear here, it's only the nuclear family or the children of the nuclear family, aren't they? There's no brothers or... No, it doesn't extend um, to brothers and sisters. It's children, grandchildren and their spouses and stepchildren and step-grandchildren and their spouses. Yeah. So normally in, in sort of connectivity tests where we're talking about relatives, including the one in the Israeli income tax ordinance, 
um, in fact, all three of the ones in the income, Israeli income tax ordinance, you would it would be wider than this, wouldn't it? In one sense, it would be flatter. Yes. So yeah, if you look at the um, and and I'm not I'm absolutely not doing this on the fly, but if you look at the use of um, connected with in even the capital gains tax act, it is broader than this. Um, in but does in... it go deep? So does it go as deep? Do you connect it to your grandchild or your spouse's grandchild? You, is it is it this sort of like it's 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 horizontal instead of vertical? Is that the? Um, it's just broader. I would literally have to look at the look at the legislation. Um, That's not then. She says in a cagey way. Yeah, I'd, I I'm afraid I I yeah I would want to look at the legislation in order to um, answer that. That's one of those questions that I ask with no idea where it's going. Yeah, no, and that's fine. Um, but it's certainly broader. It's definitely broader. Whether it's as deep or deeper, off the top of my head, um, I don't think it is as deep. But it's certainly broader, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think because you because you're catching. I mean, there's there's no like business partners or people like this. No, no. Um, though of course those might well be caught by reciprocal arrangements. Yeah. But yeah. in yeah, but in terms of these these defined persons who give this deeming of a settler interest where there isn't one, that is. But it is it is very broad, and it means that if you meet the requirements, and I think the saving grace with Section eighty six is that if you're not UK domiciled or domiciled in some part of the UK, then actually you're out. So it does include deep domicile, obviously, but for that first sort of period of years where you're not UK domiciled either, um, but resident, it it isn't going to get you. After after you become deemed domicile or actually domicile, you've got a problem. Um, but until that, but point, only if you're also resident, right? Only if, yes, if you're if you're a resident, exactly. So but you because... could you could you could be domiciled and then say move to Spain. Yes, and that should keep you out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, provided, okay. of course, that you are genuinely not resident in the UK. And I'm not picking on Spain. Um, any country, other countries are available. Right. OK, so um, have we established that we know what all our terms are and that we qualify for the. Broadly for the speaking, yes. Yeah. OK, so go for it. What happens? How much tax do I pay as a, as a settlor that meets all these criteria? So you would be chargeable to uh, on gains um so the chargeable chargeable gains of an amount equal to any amount on which the trustees would be chargeable to tax for the year by virtue of disposals of any of the settled property originating from the settlor so it's the property that originated from the settlor that's disposed of in that tax year and to which if the trustees were uk resident they would be liable to tap the capital gains tax Right. OK, so this is really good, actually. This is nice and intellectually coherent, which is a rare thing for me to say about um, a tax provision. The avoidance is the fact the trustee does not pay tax. It is not the fact that you don't pay tax. Yes. So it just it just stands it just stands you in the shoes of the trustee. Yeah. And because you're the person that's located because you are both domiciled and resident in the UK. You're the person within reach, yes. so you are the right person to pay the charge. And because you're because you can potentially benefit from the trust, you can go and get your money back. Well, it sort does of. it does still apply. So you get all of those gains attributed to you, even if, say, for example, 
it's only a settler interested trust by virtue of the fact that your grandchildren can benefit and you're expressly excluded. Right. Okay. So there is if you've got a if you've got a defined person settler interested trust, then you can still end up paying gains that you can't recoup. Right. But but okay. So it breaks down when you get to that edge edge of it. But you can I can see that there is a thought process here. It's not just like hit them with a stick to be to to penalise them. It's or to deter them. It is clearly it's just rectifying the avoidance yes yeah um and so yeah and you you the, the um it's treated as forming the highest part of the amount on which he's chargeable to capital gains tax for the year so that's possibly punitive yes yeah, so you pay know. the top rate yeah exactly <clears throat> but you so it's it's treated as say that exactly say that again it's treated as forming the highest part of, of the, the amount, amount on which, which he's chargeable to CGT for the year. For the year, yeah. But is that actually punitive, or is it just that you, you know, if if they treated it as the bottom part, would you not? You still have taxable gains, chargeable gains allocated against your name. You still end up with the same tax bill, wouldn't you? I think it can be punitive. It depends. Okay. All right. It's not. It's it's not prima facie and unreservedly so. <laughs> but it, it depends on how it unwinds. Okay. So. so ooh. Oh, yeah. Something to mention. And again, this is something I think we're going to have to cover in another another um, episode. Protected trusts regime. This was something that was introduced a few years ago, I think possibly with effect from 2019, 2018. Anyway, sometime around then. And essentially, it came in hand in hand with some with the more sort of severe provisions for non UK domiciled individuals. Um, so things like um, former, formerly domiciled residents and things like that. It came in with those. And effectively, what it does is where you have a trust which was settled by a um, non-UK domiciled individual, provided that they do not add value to it after they become domiciled, deemed domiciled, however you want to put it, whichever way it is, then you then it's entitled to certain um, protections so that certain anti-avoidance provisions don't apply or apply in a more limited manner. Okay. So so it it retains some of its treatment that it had because he was, the settler law was non-dommed at the time. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's a big topic in and of itself. And the problem is that it feeds into the transfer of assets abroad regime it feeds into this regime um it feeds into the settler interested trusts regime in a toya it, it it's all over the place but it's one coherent sort of idea which is trusts with certain characteristics are entitled to protection from or um reduced exposure to um certain tax avoidance regimes and you do get some benefits in relation to Section 86 from being a protected trust. So when we do our paid content bonus episode, (laughs) we'll cover that ground. We're not doing paid content, by the way, people. There's there's not enough of you. We have got 590 followers on Spotify now. Oh, that's good. I actually don't think I follow us on Spotify. I probably should. 591. I I think that would be nice of you. But you've got your Apple, aren't you? Uh, I don't no, I use Spotify for podcasts. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now to square as folk, right? So, um, what's next? We've got the protected trust regime. Uh, yeah. 
And that moves us on to section 87, which is the other side of the apple. Um, so section 87 does two things. It mops up any gains that aren't um, attributed to a settlor. And if you don't, if you don't have a settler interested trust, it applies to gains in that trust in their entirety. Okay, so this is a mirror, or not, I'm not going to say mirror because you'll shout at me and tell me they're really different, right? But in transfer of assets abroad, there is a secondary charge on beneficiaries. On beneficiaries, right? And 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 that that word beneficiary is is more loosely used than here, isn't it? So oh, that's right, yes. But um, but it's sort of doing the same thing. It's charge the person that makes the transfer and also charge people that can benefit from as a result of the transfer. Yeah, generally speaking, it's charge the person who made the transfer and if you can't get them, charge somebody who gets the benefit of it, yeah. Yeah, okay. So how does Section 87 work then? Very broadly, it attributes gains to beneficiaries who have received a capital payment, capital payment being a very... Uh, being a very technically defined term. Yeah, well, that sounds weird. A capital payment surely is money in, money out type. So capital payment is really broadly defined and essentially it comes down to being a benefit. So a financial benefit, it has to be a financial benefit, but it comes down to being a benefit. So this is why, for example, Section 87 is relevant to trusts that maybe own property and which a beneficiary has rent-free use of or where there's an interest-free or lower than market rate loan to a beneficiary there is a financial benefit to those and that's those sorts of financial benefits are caught by the definition of the term capital payment which is okay. in section 97 of tcga which is so that's um counterintuitive but there you go um right so Section 86, I'm, I'm looking at Harriet's excellent notes. Um, section 86 is applied in priority to 87. So there's a hierarchy between the two. Yeah, if you can charge the gain on the settler, you do that first. You only go after the beneficiary secondarily. And is that an all or nothing thing? So is it if you've got split, split settlers like you were talking about before? If you can charge anybody with anything, does that turn off 87 or does the remainder carry forward? The remainder carries forward. So let's take that example that we had. Um, was it was it Mr. Mr. Rose? And so we've got the everyday trust. Uh, Christian and Rose, wasn't it? Christian and Rose. Yes. Yeah. So Christian, con Christian, who is UK domiciled and UK resident in the relevant tax year when contributed a holiday home in France, which is sold, realising again. That gain is chargeable on him under Section 86. Yeah. Those, on the other hand, who contributed a holiday home in Italy, which is also sold in the same tax year, um, realising a gain, we can't get her because she's not UK resident. So what happens to that gain is it can't be charged on uh, Christian because Christian it isn't a settler in relation to yeah, it he doesn't he doesn't meet the, the however many limb test at the start exactly so that goes into a pool of what in the distant mists of time were called section were called um stockpiled gains 
we're then called section two two gains and i think are now called section one three gains maybe anyway they are it, basically it's amounts that would be chargeable to capital gains tax on the trustee where the trustee uk resident right so it's amounts chargeable to um on the uh, to capital gains tax on the uk on a uk resident effectively and they sit there in that little pool of stockpiled gains and any time a uk resident beneficiary gets a benefit that benefit is matched with the with the get with the putative gain that's sitting there in the stockpiled gains pool and is charged on as much of the gain as can be matched with the payment so what that means is if you've got a great gain of six million pounds sitting in your stockpile gains and somebody gets a million pound benefit, they are charged capital gains tax on a million pounds of that six million benefit. And the benefit in, sorry, and the pool of gains goes down to five million. So you've got five million in your gains pool. They've paid the tax on the million that they got. Um, you're still sitting there with your five million gain. The next tax year, they get a benefit of 7 million. There's only a 5 million gain left to be matched. So they pay tax on that 5 million. Right. Okay. They get 2 million tax free because there's no gain to match it with. So, well, that's if there's no other provisions applicable. If there's no other provisions. So this takes us to the, this takes us to an interesting question. I'm a trust, right? And I have one bank account. Right. And into that bank account gets paid income and capital gains. And then I make a capital payment out to a beneficiary out of my bank account. Which of, which of the um, two provisions that we've discussed over the last 12 months, which is one of which is transfer of assets abroad regime, one of which is section 87, they're obviously both triggered, right? Because your transfer of assets abroad regime is triggered in the payments to beneficiaries or whatever the whatever the second charge is called is triggered. And um, the Section 87 rule could be triggered depending on how you work out what's working here. So explain to me, because as somebody who works in a, in a low tax jurisdiction where there are trusts, people often talk about segregated accounts and stuff like that. So where what are they doing and how do they interact with the rules that we've talked about so you've got one if you've got one account into which you're paying your income and your gains you cry okay so the the rules on this aren't particularly clear so first of all you cry because it's not very clear and second of all you cry because probably what you're going to do is you're going to apply the income tax rules with the higher rate of tax in preference and once all of the income is matched you're then going to go to the gains rules probably but only probably but you can avoid this problem by having segregated accounts right so you keep your income separate from your gains so that uh, so that you know what is income and what is gains effectively so right. that you you're not then trying to do some sort of apportionment or work out if you're applying one set of provisions in preference to the others. Uh, but if you if you don't have, if you haven't segregated, then it's going to be miserable for you. So let's let's imagine a, a complex and active 
situation where you've got income coming in once every month, expenses going out. Okay. Yeah, a big gain comes in. It sits in the same bank account. It's all jumbled up together. You've got less than the aggregate of all of the income you've ever received and all of the gains you've ever received because you paid expenses out. Yes. It's just a mess, right? Because as I understand it, the income, that the, the, the way the revenue thinks about it, which has been explained to me, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, you know the person who explained, you know the person who explained this to me, and you, you, you quite respect them. So um, the, 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 the revenue, think of it almost like a massive pile of pound coins and you can't work out which of the pound coins that it pollutes the whole thing. I think we're talking about fungibles, aren't we? If, if, if you say so. So you can't identify by looking at the huge pile of pound coins. You can't say this pound coin was income and that pound coin was gain. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and that's exactly how it's treated. And then you're trying to work out what goes with what and how, so, how you apply the rules to that big mixed up pile. It's, it's so a mixed fund. You're saying that you apply the income tax provision. That's the transfer of assets abroad regime in preference to this until you've used up all of the income that's gone into the account. Arguably. Yes. Arguably. I've touched a raw nerve there. Yes. It feels like it feels like it's not certain in any way, shape or form. It's it's a very confusing situation. And so, for example, um, where you are looking at similar issues with mixed funds where you're relying on the remittance basis, there's a whole set of rules to deal with this. There isn't the same set of rules or an equivalent set of rules to deal with. So it's relevant in a remittance basis context where you, um, for example, if you if you get a mixed fund of, um, clean and tainted capital, clean clean capital and, and tainted capital, for example. So, what do you bring back in? You want to bring so, in the clean capital, but if you've so not just just to be clear, there, clean capital is the capital that goes into the trust originally. Sorry, I'm talking about the remittance basis here. Sorry, yeah, okay, sorry, yeah. So, you've got so, stuff that's earned outside UK and stuff that. Yeah, so the clean you can bring into the UK, and it's not a remittance. Um. The other, the rest is stuff that, if it's remitted, will attract a tax charge. So, so the difference there would be, say, the clean capital was earned before you were resident in the... Precisely, yeah. So you could okay. have some clean capital. Yeah, exactly. So with that, there's a whole set of legislative rules about how you sort that mess out called the mixed fund rules. Um, we don't have that here. So it's much more complicated. So at that point, fiduciaries globally... What you need to do is you need to ring Harriet and she'll help you. Yeah, or a really competent accountant. To be honest, well, we re we rarely do sell our services on this podcast. But, um, you know, it, the point of this is it's really bloody complicated. It uh, is complicated. It out and you need full professional advice. And trustees, I'll give you this one for free. Segregate your accounts um, if you can. Yes, and it's even if you've got even if you've got mixed accounts, it's worth segregating going forward. Get new segregated accounts and do that going forward because that will that will help you. You've got a historic problem, but at least you're not adding to it. Yeah. So you would then in that situation you would open a new account and pile all your new your new gains into that. 
to ensure the correct treatment for that gain. This is not tax avoidance. This is ensuring the correct treatment. Yes, this is just making sure that you can um, identify what's gain and needs sorry, what's gain and needs to be matched to gains, and what is um, and what when it's paid out it it can be matched with income, so that you are getting the right tax treatment and you're not getting tax seepage by having to pay income tax in relation to gains effectively. Exactly. Nobody wants seepage. Right. Section 87A. So Section 87A. That's a little bit like doing a, po- a tax podcast with Frankie Howard sometimes, I'm sure. <laughs> well, quite. Um, yeah. Section 87A just sets out how you match with your stockpiled gains, Section 2-2 amount, Section 1-3 amount, as it now is. Um <clears throat> So what you do is you find the total amount of capital payments received by the beneficiaries from the trustees in the relevant tax year. Um, You match the amount from the relevant tax year. uh, As I've said, basically, I could read out what step three of the legislation says to you, but essentially you just match as much of it as you can with the, with, with the pain, with the capital payments. And you start with the gains in the current year if not all capital payments, if not if the, if that's less than the total amount of capital payments, you keep going back. Um, if you have a gain that exceeds capital payments in the current tax year, you look back at previous year's capital payments to match it with those. Right. Okay. And then on Harriet's slides, the last bullet point, which is I think the most important one on the whole side that she's not read out, is can get quite complicated. If possible, leave all calculations to accountants. <laughs> That's my general principle in yeah. as a tax barrister is don't do the maths. Please no, God, never do the maths. Do never maths. do the maths. Right. Okay. So <laughs> that's you 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 referred very broadly to the alphabet provisions, which yes. seems like we've got quite a long way to go. Um we have, we have, yes. Um sell it to them. Come on, we've been talking for 40 minutes already. <laughs> so I'm gonna go through the alphabet provisions quickly. All right. Okay. Is, is that is that is that a good sell? That, that was my hint. <laughs> right. So, alphabet provisions tend to be new-ish. So the first one, uh, which was a bit disappointing for everybody who used to do something called washing of gains. What happens with washing of gains is that, or what used to happen, was that if you had uh, a non-resident trust with UK resident and non-UK resident beneficiaries. You in tax year one, you would make uh, a capital payment to your non-UK resident beneficiaries. The gain would be matched with that payment to the non-UK residents. Tax couldn't be charged on it. And then in tax year two, you were when you didn't have any gains left to match, you would make your payment to your UK resident beneficiaries. There's no gains to be matched, so there's no charge to tax. You couldn't do it all in one year because then there would be apportionment between the resident and non-resident gains sorry, non-resident and non-resident beneficiaries, but if you did it across two tax years, then you simply, you paid out all of your gain, that was matched, and and then that, that gain, which was matched with a non-resident capital payment, was extinguished, and you could just pay straight out with no matching to your UK residents in the next year. Now... Now, I know, the... I know that's a type of avoidance, right? And we're not supposed to, and it, obviously it can't be done anymore. So I'm, I'm talking about something that used to happen in the past. It can't be done anymore. But I just think about some, obviously avoidance is generally considered to be a bad thing. But I, I look at something like that and think that's really clever. 
it's it, it it's simple and elegant, isn't it? And I mean, it, what it, I think what they didn't like was when it was sort of almost like bed and breakfasting transactions. Last day of tax year one, you pay to non-resident. Next year of tax year two, you pay to residents. I mean, that's just that's vile. But the but the but the the intellectual exercise of arriving at that working is as you said elegant and i admire that i don't think that people should do tax avoidance but still but also it makes sense because the situation that we have now is that saving one limited exception no gain is no gain is matched with a capital payment to a non-resident and so you could make a cap uh, you could make a payment to a non-resident in tax year one it's not matched in tax year 10 you make a payment to a resident and all of those gains back to tax year one are taxed uh, by reference to the capital payment to the UK resident in year 10. And the two payments, there's no element of avoidance there. The two payments are being made uh, in an entirely unconnected manner. And so in effect, you are punishing the UK resident for being in a trust with non-UK residents, because if they'd both been UK resident, it would have been matched. And so the avoid the, the anti-avoidance possibly goes a little bit further than it needs to. But if you look back and say, well, look, this is money or this is value that would have been kept within the UK, but for this. And so really we're looking at how we can tax the settlor. But I think it I think it does it it arguably does go a little bit far. Or or are, or are we even saying the people that should frankly have paid tax on this of the trustees it's their it's their non-residents that's the problem so they would have received all of the gain so again, all of the gain being taxed is a good thing what it's saying is we want to tax all of the gain in the uk because there was a uk settler but it may well be the case particularly where you've got non-resident beneficiaries as well that the settler would always have put it into a trust. That trust would never have been UK resident because it didn't make any sense because you had non-resident beneficiaries as well. So it, it it's possibly, it feels like it's a bit of a blunt instrument to address a problem, but we are where we are. Yeah, okay. And I think, to be honest, if you fall into that trap, you're not thinking, you're not thinking carefully enough. I'm, I'm, there's, <laughs> one, there's one exception to when gains sorry so when capital payments to non-residents will be matched with gains and this is if it is in the year the settlement ends so if you are say you've got a settlement of 10 million pounds with five million pounds worth of gains and you pay five million pounds to your non-resident beneficiaries by way of capital payment and five million to your uk resident by way of capital payment then and that, that then the trust is gone because there's no property left in it so the trust disappears in a puff of smoke or a puff of logic if you like then what happens is you can match your get match your gains to the capital payment to the non-residents and there's an apportionment so 2.5 million of the gains will be matched with the capital payment to the non-residents and not charged and our resident beneficiary will only have to pay tax on 2.5 million so that's only in that's only in the situation of the trust being determined yeah, if you if if the settlement ends in the year, so I mean you could make a payment out. You do wouldn't have to do it at the same time, but they would have to be in the. They would both have to be in the year the settlement ends, the tax year the settlement ends. Okay, well that's so that's just the, the nature of the logic. There's nothing else. To, it, it's gone, right? That's why. Yeah. That's why. And that. then then you get a bit of a yeah. Then you get a bit of a boost in that 
your your resident beneficiary isn't charged on all of the gains. Right. So she's now moved on to the slide that covers 87G and 87H. And this looks like a cracker. Let's have a go at this. So these apply where you've got a beneficiary of the settlement that receives a capital payment from the trustees in a tax year. You've got a UK resident settlor in the tax in that tax year. And the beneficiary is a close member of the settlor's family. In those circumstances, you apply Section 87 and 87A as if the capital payment was received by the settlor. And the settlor was a beneficiary of the settlement. So effectively, for the purposes of Section 87, where those criteria are met, you stand the settlor in the shoes of the Section 87 beneficiary. Right, OK. Where where does the beneficiary, who is a close member of the settlor's family, don't even begin to wonder what that definition is. Um, where do they have to be resident? Do they are they resident in the UK or can they be resident in France or Germany or Albania or wherever? Uh, th there isn't a residence requirement for them. So you could have. So correct me if I'm wrong here because I'm probably miss missing something else. That's in in. Go back. Uh, yeah. Okay. So. You could have a res non dom settlor. Yes. Paying a benefit, a trust that that's set up by, that's yeah. set up by a res non dom settlor, paying a benefit to his child, say. Non resident child, who's yeah. Resident in Belgium. Yeah. Boom, the settlor's got to pay. Yes. Though if it's any consolation, he is entitled to recover the full amount of tax from the original recipient. But, but, but that seemed that that would seem to go against his res non dom status, right? Because it's a non-resident trust with a bank account outside the UK making a payment to a person outside the UK. What's that got to do with him as a as a as a resident if he's non dom? Well, that's what the rules say. However, close member of the settlor's family is really quite narrowly defined. Um, it's the settler's spouse or civil partner, including two people living together as if they were a married couple or civil partners. And I just have to say, you're starting to get this language in UK legislation now, um, this including two people living together as if they were a married couple or civil partners. Shotgun, the first case on what that means. I would love to do that case where two people living together... <laughs> try to wiggle out of it by saying it's not as if we were married or in a civil partnership. We're still nice to each other. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we still care about each other. Yeah. And, I'm, and... I'm bringing a cup of tea in the morning, therefore we're clearly not married. Exactly. Um, um, okay, no... yeah, I mean, that, that'll be interesting. How long does that, how, what, a week? Oh, easy, yeah. I'd like, yeah, you'd want to run that for months if you could, wouldn't you? No, yeah. no, I'm saying, like, how long, like, how long do you have to be living together? Um, well, uh, who knows? And is it the, the test is as the if they quantity? were a married couple? It's not like to show that they are properly committed. That's not what the test is. You could do that in a day if you live together for a day. That's weird. I don't like that. Anyway, right. It's, it's so it's broad wording, which probably answers more questions. Uh, so it probably asks more questions than it answers. I agree. Um, but so it's it's spouses, including people who are like spouses if anyway whatever that phrase means and a child who is under the age of 18 okay so if you've got a 25 year old child they can that's fine that doesn't cut it but yeah. if 
because because if I'm if I remember my 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 very early stages, a child can't a child can't can't essentially own, own things anyway. Uh, they can be a taxpayer, but they technically can't own anything. That's right. Yeah, I never quite understood how they did kids' bank accounts, but there you go. Uh, they're effectively in trust. Yeah. Is, are there any, any other elements to the alphabet provisions, Harriet? Oh, yes, loads. Um, the other main point is something referred to as the onward gift rules. Um, in essence, what the onward gift rules do is if you make a payment, say, to a non-resident beneficiary and there is an intention or an arrangement that that will be passed on or something representing it will be passed on, to a UK resident um, at the time. So you, the intention is at the time that it's paid out to the non-UK res. Um, this is this intention to make an onward gift to a UK resident. And in fact, within three years of the initial gift, the onward gift is made and the person is UK resident at the time, then that is caught. Right. So you can't just give it to... To somebody else with the intention that they're going to hand it back yeah exactly right. yeah so again let's use let's use our trust uh settled by rose and christian um so it's uh, it, the beneficiaries of it are the children of christian and the children of rose and one of rose's ch children lives in the andaman islands which probably don't have any taxation and so the trustees make a payment of a million pounds to Rose's daughter in the Andaman Islands. And then Rose transfers that to Christian's daughter in the UK. And that was the intention all along. That is that that, that would be caught by this rule and that section 80, that would that payment would be chargeable as if section 87 applied to it. OK. Um, and again, we're not picking on the Andaman Islands for any particular reason other than they're on a book next to where you're sitting. Yeah, um, pretty much. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So uh, have we covered the ground? We have covered most of the ground. One thing that I should mention and probably should have mentioned earlier is that what used to be TCGA Section 13, which attribute and is now um, Section 3, and that attributes gains of closely held non-UK companies to the shareholders. Um, gains from underlying companies can be attributed to a trust and then up again to um, beneficiaries. So they'll go through the Section 3 process and then through the Section 87 process. So you can't eliminate the effect of these provisions by simply sticking a company under your trust. Probably worth mentioning. <laughs> so... Um... Great. Do you know what? That is a complicated thing. And we apologise to everybody for how complicated it is. But we didn't write it. We didn't write it. And if you've stuck it through the, I think, hour or almost hour that we've been talking about it, we thank you greatly for what you've done. Um, because it is complex. I think what it shows us is that the, the anti-avoidance provisions in major jurisdictions are really quite sophisticated and difficult to grasp. And what you should never do is sort of think that you understand it without taking full, competent advice, right? 
even if you've listened through this talk 25 times, you still need uh, a competent lawyer. And I'm, I'm not making any more jokes about you should employ me or Harriet, whatever. But please go and get proper advice if you are the beneficiary or the settler of a trust. Or indeed the trustee. Or indeed the trustee. We are all in 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 jurisdictions outside the UK that have finance centres. We are all still seeing trusts settled decades ago um, where things like this have not been properly considered. Um, I think that's that's true to say. They are getting less, but they are there are still some out there. Exactly. And yeah. if you, you you should just just refresh your advice. Absolutely. And what I would say is you'll have heard from this, me stopping to think, me saying, actually, do you know what? I don't know without looking at the provisions. I advise on this on probably a near daily basis. It is incredibly complicated. And this transfer of assets abroad, any of these international avoidance, um, well, any of these anti-avoidance regimes aimed at international type avoidance, they are incredibly complicated and you need to be advised by someone who is sitting down with the legislation in front of them and can give you chapter and verse. Yeah. So we don't need to do the health warning, but we will just for all time's sake. Hey? <laughs> Remember, this is not advice. This is just a conversation between two people talking about tax. Harriet, it's been lovely to talk to you again. I can't believe that we managed to do two episodes in two weeks. Um, if we had an agent, they would be very happy. Well, probably not that happy because, as you said, still no one would want to buy it. But we thank you for listening anyway. The podcast elves will be annoyed that we've doubled their workload this week. <laughs> um, I do also want to say thank you very much to the individual Inno man who listened to an episode yesterday and gave us an extra, extra, extra country on our list. Yes, um, thank you. Um, we... We love looking at where all our listeners are based and we hope that whoever it is in Oman um, listens to some more, as with all of you. <laughs> I get super excited. I get super excited. Anyway, right, I'm going to press stop. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.